Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest installment. Today's episode is about recent advances in managing OAB. And joining us is Professor Hashim, who's a urological surgeon at the Bristol Urological Institute. He has a growing reputation as a teacher, researcher, and clinician. He's now running courses in the UK, in Europe, and internationally on overactive bladder, both its investigation, for example, in urodynamics, and also in its treatment with botulinum toxin and sacral nerve stimulation. He's also played a big role in the last five to 10 years in the International Continent Society, and he's led working groups on urodynamic standardization, uh, training syllabus for female urology and urogynecology, nocturia, uh, and recently on mesh complications from incontinence surgery. Um, Hashim, you've been in urology for 20 years now. So what would you see as the major developments in this period and how is OAB management evolving? Um, thank you, Professor Abrams, for this um, very kind introduction. Um, overactive bladder has been developing um, a lot over the last decades. Um, and I still remember um, when I started off as a research fellow when it was um, in 2003, and overactive bladder was really starting then uh, to pick up, especially with terminology um, uh, of the overactive bladder syndrome. Um, and over the time, we've, I've seen major developments happening. Um, we At that time, we had only oxybutynin and tolteridine as the main uh, medications uh, for um, overactive bladder syndrome. And then... Um, we had uh, solifenacin develop at that time, uh, and also the interest looking at uh, M2 and M3 selective receptor antagonists for the overactive bladder. Um, Darifenacin was also developed uh, and uh, trospium chloride. Um, so several antimuscarinics were being developed. Um, and it wasn't really until 2011 that a... Um, Beta-3 agonists were coming into play. Um, Solabegron was, uh, was developed but never marketed. Um, and the first marketed, commercially marketed drug was uh, Mirabegron. And that looked at uh, the beta-3, um, uh, worked on the beta-3 agonists um, receptor. Um, and then from then on, uh, became established as one of the main treatments for overactive bladder syndrome. So if we, I mean, you've already mentioned antimuscarinics, anticholinergics, and mirabegron. Um, nowadays, when you talk to patients about these two different drugs, how do you differentiate them for the patient when they're trying to uh, decide which or which of those drugs they, they want to take? Um, so we, um, so what I tell patients is that um, we have different medications. There are different um, receptors in the bladder and they work um, in different ways. 
Um, I tell them that the anti-muscarinics have been around for a long time uh, and we have about seven uh, marketed medications um, and usually we try to follow the, the, in the UK, we follow the NICE guidelines uh, for, in terms of treatment pathways. Um, we also look at the patient uh, overall holistically. Um, so especially in elderly patients, we wouldn't, for example, the NICE guidelines recommend that we shouldn't be prescribing oxybutynin uh, due to its um, side effect profile. Um, and again, if we're thinking of uh, drugs, um, whether they cross the blood-brain barrier or not, um, and that's one of the other things that we would discuss with the patients. Um, and also tell them that there is a drug that works in a different, uh, on a different mechanism, um, has a different side effect profile, um, and has a good efficacy. So especially the side effect profiles, um, looking at the dry mouth, um, blurred vision, um, I just had a, actually, uh, just today I was speaking to, to one lady who said that um, she was on an anti-muscarinic and had lots of dry mouth, ended up seeing the dentist um, who told her um, it's because of your medication. So it's important to look at holistically at the patients. Yes, uh, um, later, later in the podcast series, we'll be talking to Professor Adrian Wagg who, as you know, is a geriatrician. I'm sure the issue of anticholinergic load is coming up. Do you discuss that with patients? I mean, it's rather a con complex concept, isn't it? It, it, is, a, it is a very complex uh, concept. And I think, um, you know, lots of medications um, can contribute to the anticholinergic burden, including antihistamines and a lot of commonly used drugs um, there are calculators, and uh, we use them in the um, in the clinic, uh, which are available online uh, to calculate the anticholinergic burden. Um, and we do discuss patients, and patients actually now are coming forward as well and saying, you know, what is the risk that I have of developing dementia and uh, and problems uh, in the long term, uh, especially the younger patients if they have to take um, medications for a longer period of time. Yes, it's, a, it's an important issue. I, I mean, what has changed and what is advancing in terms of the advice you give on lifestyle interventions and behavioural modifications? I should just add, of course, that we define behavioural modifications for the purposes of this as bladder training and pelvic floor exercises. So, so, bladder so lifestyle modifications... Um, I mean, we published, uh, my research was looking at um, uh, fluid manipulation and we, we, we suggest and advise patients in, and it's in our information leaflet that um, they should uh, cut down uh, fluid by 25% as long as they're drinking more than a liter a day. Um, that combined with uh, reduction of nighttime fluids four hours before going to bed um, also, the effects of fizzy drinks, uh, caffeine, uh, on 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 symptoms, um, and in terms of uh, combining it with bladder training um, is is a routine really in our in our clinic, um, including a bladder training regime. So our overactive bladder leaflet has a bladder training regime where we ask patients to. Um, fill out a bladder diary, which is compulsory um, 
or mandatory to, to have that uh, uh, in our clinic. And, and essentially what they're trying to do is uh, getting their brains to control their bladders as opposed to their bladders controlling their brains. And I tell patients that is that that's what you need to do is you need your brain to control the bladder. Um, so they would go every hour on the hour. Then the week later, they'd go every hour and 15 minutes on, and then so on. And they have to do it whether they like it or not in the sense that even if they don't have the sensation to pass urine, they, we ask them to go and pass urine so that they get into that habit. And it seems to work very well in about, um, you know, at least 30% of patients seem to do very well with bladder training. So when you prescribe drugs, be they anti-muscarinics or mirabegron, you give them this whole package, do you? Yeah, so it depends on how severe the symptoms are or how bothersome they are, but we would always start with lifestyle um, interventions and uh, conservative therapy. Um, in those who are very bothered with their symptoms, um, again, symptom scores are very important to be filled out. And if they're really bothered, then we would combine them with medications. Um, and certainly, um, there, is, there is data to suggest that um, combination therapy of lifestyle interventions and behavioral therapy uh, works uh, better. And um, there is new data with Marabegron and, and uh, pelvic floor exercises and bladder training. Uh, but even in the, uh, you know, a few years ago, there was data on tolteridine and pelvic floor uh, muscle training and bladder training combination as well. So it's, it, it's much better to combine. Yeah, I think these are important new data that perhaps many urologists, gynecologists and primary care physicians are not really very well aware of. Exactly, yeah. Yes. No, I agree. Um, looking at other patient groups... Uh, there seems to be some recent advances in perhaps suggesting in the past we ignored overactive bladder in conditions like stress incontinence in women and prostatic obstruction in men. Uh, and do you feel we should be paying more attention to treating overactive bladder at the same time as we treat the woman's stress incontinence or the man's prostatic obstruction? How do you, how do you think we're going to approach this in the future? Um, I think the, our, our um, uh, way that we approach it is we would normally approach the most bothersome um, symptoms. Um, and and that, that is really because that's what the patients are complaining of. Um, I just uh, finished a clinic today and um, had a patient, uh, a male patient, who is suffering with severe overactive bladder symptoms but has urodynamically proven obstruction. Um, and his flow doesn't really bother him. His main bothersome symptom is the, um, is the overactive bladder um, symptoms. The, mi the million dollar question is, is that, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the, the prostatic obstruction that's causing the um, overactive bladder symptoms or is it the um, overactive bladder symptoms happening um, idiopathically or on its own? Um, and I think an important question we ask is, you know, which symptoms appeared first? Um, and certainly in younger, in younger uh, men or women, um, if they have um, overactive bladder symptoms um, before the, um, the other symptoms, then uh, it would be very reasonable to target that. Um, 
and especially in younger men, let's say in their ages, in their 20s or 30s or even uh, 40s, it's unlikely that uh, a prostatic obstruction would be the cause of their symptoms. But then as the men get older, we know that um, the prostates get bigger, um, they may cause um, obstructive um, obstruction to the outlet, uh, leading to uh, problems in voiding, which in uh, then could cause then storage symptoms as well. Hmm. So this is going to be more of a feature, you think, paying attention to the different groups of symptoms, but I like the fact that you introduced the concept of bothersomeness as being the way to direct your treatment. So if the patients, um, assuming they don't have other complicating conditions and just have overactive bladder that's difficult to treat. I know you're an expert on botulinum toxin injections to the bladder and also on sacral nerve stimulation, and you use these yourself and have done for a number of years now. Um, how do you prioritize one or other treatment in patients who are saying the drugs aren't good enough, prof, I need something more? Um, so again, it, 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 choice is very important, and actually, and, and you know, giving patients all the information is key to this, um, uh, because once you start um, discussing uh, invasive or minimally invasive treatment, um, some patients will say, actually, we don't want any 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 injections into the bladder. We don't want anything into our spine. Um, again, it's bothersome, which which really leads to it. Um, we tend to do urodynamics if, if patients have refractory overactive bladder, i.e., in other words, they failed um, medical therapy and conservative therapy, and we've maximized we've maximized them. Um, uh, we maximized both of them, um, and uh, after urodynamics, and we would offer them uh, either botulinum toxin injection. Um, of which Botox is the only uh, licensed treatment for uh, overactive bladder and urgency incontinence, um, or sacral neuromodulation. So we would offer both of them to the patient, and then the patient um, decides uh, which one they prefer. Um, there are certain guidelines, so the NICE guidelines, for example, would say uh, start with uh, Botox um, at 100 units, um, but uh, in our practice, and we, we go through the MDT as well, uh, we offer um, uh, both treatments to patients because there are patients who would, sorry, there are patients who wouldn't want to tolerate the risk of urinary retention. They don't want to have the risk of having urinary tract infections um, and therefore would opt for the sacral neuromodulation. Perhaps you can say a little bit more about a combination therapy in men who have prostatic obstruction who seem to have bothersome overactive bladder symptoms? I think, I mean, combination therapy is, is probably um, the way forward in a lot of, medica in a lot of um, medical fields. And, and uh, overactive bladder, um, uh, BPO or benign prostatic obstruction, um, uh, is not is no different. So um, we tend to combine in patients who have uh, storage and voiding symptoms. We would tend to combine um, an alpha blocker, uh, maybe a five alpha reductase inhibitor, 
and uh, an anti-muscarinic or a beta three agonist, um, and 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 uh, target both the storage and avoiding symptoms. Um, in some men, there is also erectile dysfunction that we would have to consider, uh, and therefore combining it with um, a PDE5 inhibitor uh, would be another uh, combination that we would uh, we would use. Um, so that that would be the the main combination therapies in men uh, with both uh, benign prostatic uh, obstruction uh, and uh, overactive bladder symptoms. Um, the other fields that are combining uh, medications now as well is is uh, where as we're talking about sacral neuromodulation. There isn't really much data, but um, one or two uh, published trials suggesting combining. Uh, medications uh, with sacral neuromodulation. So uh, someone who um, has a sacral nerve stimulator, uh, it's not working, it's working, but you know they still needed that extra bit of um, uh, to, to hit the urgency. Uh, then you could combine, add in myrobegron or uh, solifenacin, for example. Um, to to their to their symptoms, um, there is some there is one uh, again there's some data to suggest that if they're having Botox, then the anti-muscarinics can be stopped after two weeks because that's when the Botox uh, starts to kick in. But what, as the Botox starts to wear off, we would um, we would ask uh, patients to start their um, anti-muscarinics or beta three agonists at that time as well. So we are using a lot of combination therapy, and it is probably the way forward, trying to target um, the um, uh, the overactive uh, bladder symptoms, which, as you know, is a chronic uh, condition that we need to, uh, you know, that patients will suffer from. And I suppose it's it's a reasonable approach where our specific knowledge as to mechanisms in OAB is rather imperfect. So using two or maybe three different modalities may have a summative effect, as, as you mentioned earlier. Exactly, exactly. And as long as they're working on different receptors or different pathways, then it would be reasonable. It's like antihypertensives where, you know, um, some patients can be on two or three different antihypertensives, each working on a different mechanism. Yes, I think that's a very good analogy because, uh, you know, when Mirabegron came in, some people said, well, why do we need another drug? And, and uh, I remember say, using the hypertension analogy that uh, cardiologists would be horrified if they were only allowed one class of drug. And so I think your point's a very good one, that, uh, that we need different modalities with different me mechanisms when we know that OAB can be a very difficult condition to treat. I think finally, I'd be very interested in your view about possible new modalities for treating overactive bladder. Have there, for example, been presentations at scientific meetings and you thought, that sounds good, and maybe this could be given to patients within the next five years or so. Yeah, so so there has been uh, some uh, new uh, treatments. Uh, well, if we talk about the uh, beta three agonists, uh, in, in there is a new drug on the market which um, is only approved in the, by the FDA in December. 
um, of 2020, which is called uh, Vibegron. Um, it's not available yet in the UK, for example. Um, combination therapy, I think, will probably uh, pick up. Uh, there's been some new trials, um, albeit small, of combining something like uh, sacral neuromodulation with um, uh, with tablets, uh, either antimuscarinics or uh, beta-3 agonists. And um, because none of the modalities is 100% successful and patients will continue to experience some uh, symptoms uh, with any of the modalities and therefore combining it uh, and maybe having larger trials looking at uh, um, the combination of, say, sacral neuromodulation with uh, mirabegron. Um, and then again, combining more than one drug, uh, targeting the different uh, pathologies. So um, having uh, so a man with erectile dysfunction, and I think we alluded to it earlier, um, having one tablet, for example, which would combine a PDE5, an alpha blocker, uh, and maybe a, a beta-3 agonist potentially uh, uh, would, would be an option. But I think we will see more and more of combination therapy with two or three modalities in the future to try to target the overactive bladder. Uh, well, Hashim, thank you very much indeed. That was a very interesting discussion. And we've learned a number of things from you today. Firstly, that we should take a more holistic view of patients and we mustn't forget the benefits that lifestyle interventions and behavioural modifications give to the patient and in particular their role in enhancing the effect of drugs. Both the antimuscarinics and Mirabegron do better if combined with the lifestyle interventions etc. And you pointed out that there was new data on that. In terms of other modalities, I liked your thinking around the wisdom of combining drugs with different modes of actions, and you thought that these could be synergistic uh, and therefore complement each other. And you saw the future as an increased use of drugs that complement each other, and the patient's acceptance of medication where two different compounds are combined within the single tablet and therefore make it easier uh, for men and women to take. If it's a man, we might, you mentioned we might want to combine treatment for erectile dysfunction as well as overactive bladder. And of course, the commonest group we see are those with prostatic obstruction as well as overactive bladder, and a single tablet for that would probably be very useful and very acceptable for patients. So I think you've given us a very nice insight into what we do now and what we may well be doing increasingly in the future. So thank you very much for talking these issues through with us. Thank you, Professor Abrams, for uh, this very interesting podcast um, and for uh, involving me. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I think this is very important for patients and clinicians to be aware of and certainly um, uh, managing OE, overactive bladder syndrome uh, needs a holistic approach and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing um, the rest of the podcasts with uh, other clinicians in the field. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. 
and we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Estellas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.